This episode is sponsored by Brooklyn Games. Get monthly tabletop RPG zines in print or PDF at patreon.com backslash Brooklyn Games or buy direct at brooklyngames.com. This month, sign up for Gabico, the floating goblin fortress in print or PDF. Enter into a massive floating dungeon divided by factions, including gigantic rubs, strange goblins covered in mushrooms, and their Astura ruler, the Goblin King. Available now at patreon.com backslash Brooklyn Games. Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I'm your host, Logar the Barbarian, joined by my guest today, Zach Glazer, the COO of Necromancer Games. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to actually do things like this <laughs> because uh, you forget sometimes when you do. My role is not that, that public facing, usually a necromancer. I do lots of the business side of things. I do a lot of the strategic planning and product planning and organization, that kind of stuff. So I don't often get out to talk to people. <laughs> I, I go to conventions, <laughs> but I, I run booths, right? So this is a real pleasure for me. So thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure for us. Now, you, I, I, the place I wanted to start, the start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, is Whisper and Venom. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, uh, Whisper and Venom was my midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, honestly, I was, uh, I was in, I was living in San Francisco with my wife uh, for like temporarily, and I was on a bus, and I had a just randomly on an iphone i typed in uh, vintage dungeons and dragons because i was bored and up popped grognardia which was a website at the time from all these old, old like old school renaissance stuff like back when it was not what it is now it was like oh my god someone's actually cares about the vaults of the dro and like my whole life came back to, you know, into the gaming in a moment right yeah and i remember as a kid i used to get dragon magazine because that's was more exciting than all the dirtier magazines you could get at the time. The Dragon Magazine was way more exciting. Like you, you kept those in the house. The other stuff you wouldn't keep, right? But mm-hmm. uh, the uh, they had a call for authors, and I always thought that'd be cool. And I took, so I sent myself a dress stamped envelope, like a dutiful person, and spent twenty two cents that I think TSR still owes me. <laughs> and, and but I got the writer's guidelines, and I thought of they gave you basics about how an adventure is structured and everything. And I had thought about that a lot since I got it, but never did it. And it's like a bucket list thing. And I decided I'm going to make a 16 page adventure. I'm going to put it for free on Dragon's Foot or some forums, right? And let everybody free. Well, Kickstarter happened right around the same time. So uh, as I was getting back into gaming, because I'd been away from it for a long time, I had a, a, I guess, respectable job. I worked for the governor of Arizona um, in policy positions and um, just doing political stuff, and which I hated. <laughs> um, I did. I absolutely hated it. I, it was just, gross <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it, it was pre- it was prestigious and nice but anyway i so i wanted to create an adventure just to have done it and i just said okay i was going to and then when the kickstarter stuff i started noticing hey they're making neat stuff with you know they can get the funding well, my background is in business and supply chain management even though i worked in politics where my degrees in business management supply chain and so i had a uh, i realized that you know, with some funding i could make a box set and i thought okay that, that's a, why not? It's America. I can do what I want, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, I could. And I found out that I could make miniatures. And, and when I was a kid, I lived in a small town. I still live in the same small town now. 
again. And uh, there was nowhere to buy D&D stuff. One place. It had the same five modules. So you have X, X1 and you know X, X3. And then you have like, you know, the Sinister Secret Assault Marsh. But never the, you know, you, you won, but never you two. So you never had much of a selection, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and never had miniatures. They had like the same six miniatures. And so I always felt that you should be able to get all the miniatures that were in adventures. So you have a whole kit, never knowing at the time as a kid, like what that would have really cost or how much effort would have been you know, taken to do it. But that didn't stop me. I had Kickstarter. So I went ahead and made the box set that I always wanted to make. And it was funded pretty well. Um, we spent a lot, spent a long time writing it and uh, rewriting it. And designed it to me like a micro, like a, a small setting and adventure. And the adventure was designed for adults. And I don't mean that in the yay fun party adult sense. I mean, in the, uh, it, it had themes. It was designed to be, to discuss things like, um, oh, uh, anti-intellectualism and the ability for groups of people to engage in antisocial behaviors against each other. When there's, a, when there's a real enemy, it's much easier to fight your own people than your actual enemy and yeah. how it is to point fingers and blame. And all those things are in there without being obvious because I don't want to make it obvious. It's not a social <laughs> statement. Yeah. It's a game, right? But I want it to be something that was recognizable for adults. You know, And it talks about, there's a lot of deeper stuff and not deep, but it, it's a small setting. So it's designed to be remote valley, far away. So you can put in any campaign. There's no, these are the gods. There's no, these are the, the politics. There's none of that. It's a re remote place that is isolated and it has three little towns. They are, they interact, but they're real different. One's like it's a farming town full of like, you know, God fearing, hard working farmers who, you know, they make ale and they make wheat. Right. And then one's a town of uh, dwarves that on their fourth or fifth generation of, of cruising, they had ancestors who were really awesome and they've made lots of stuff. But uh, as I, the younger ones got in and they saw no reason to keep making stuff for no reason. So they made a machine that sounded like it was making stuff and they would kind of relax. And while the elders would hear all this hard work going on, it was just a machine. It sounded <laughs> like work. Right? So, and then there's a town of like a, a town that was abandoned that a bunch of like lazy goblins took over to kind of like wear the skin suit of society. So they would show up and they would, they would trade, right? I put air quotes, they would trade <laughs> and they would build, but you know, all they're really trading was hard liquor and all they really built was, you know, discomfort so but they they were locked together with like a triangle of trade because they kind of need each other yeah and so it made disparate relationships go into a, a, a trading triangle and so it gave it i thought enough of a an anchor that is recognizable that you know we don't have to love our neighbors but we do we need them yeah right? so when something bad happens to the setting, which is how it all starts, is that there's something that there's no reason. If you're going to buy it, I'm sorry I spoiled it for you. <laughs> there's like a, a like a demonic presence that's actually um, it's seeping into the to this valley, and it's coming from an old abandoned like ruin monastery. And uh, it turns out that it's much worse than you think. I mean, you think, oh, you know, it's a demon in a gate, but no, it's it's not. They're not trying to invade; they're trying to escape. You know, someone's chasing them out from where they're from. And so it cascades all the way down to uh, across the ecosystems and everything else to where it, it fundamentally adjusts the natural order enough to where it finally takes someone who's got to investigate it to find out. And so it's, um, it, I was real lucky with it. It was well received. I was nominated for two Any Awards. And I would, in my very first tryout, I got my very first layout I did in InDesign was for it. And I got nominated for Best Production Values and I got nominated for a uh, Best miniatures product and WizKids, Paizo, and Reaper beat me at those. And I 
feel cheated. I mean, I got robbed. <laughs> oh, no. No, no yeah. It, when I got the, any nominations and I saw who else was on the nomination list, I was like, oh, God, this is the least likely. I'm more likely to win Miss America than I am to win the <laughs> Um, and uh, no, but it was an honor to be nominated. It really was. It, the box that came out great. It was uh, it came out just on budget, and it, it, hard to believe, but it was uh, complicated because it had ninety-seven component parts to put it together, and it was hand put together by me. Oh wow, That's, that that must have taken a few minutes to sit there and put it, each one together. I would do eighteen at a time, and I would have all the pieces out, and I it took about two weeks to fulfill three hundred of them. Mm-hmm. Sold out, uh, but it was um, a learning experience in every way because I went from liking games to knowing games, at least knowing enough about them to be, you know, I know where to get this made and I know what it takes to get a miniature made and I know the process to get art approved and I know, you know, so and I did it and it was, it was cool. I, did, I made just enough money to justify, you know, doing it again uh, and we made a couple small modules, but then we made another box set called Death and Taxes. And it was another one that was, it was a different, differently themed. It was more about anarchy and about what happens when a, when an area which was nearby the one in Western Benham is empty. It, it's there's no over overruling authority for a long time. And when the overruling authority comes back, what happens, right? And so what they come back, how they come back, they come back in the form of the tax person, the tax collectors. Because the first <laughs> thing they do to establish authority is to make sure they know who's the boss, right? So it's about what happens there and why that becomes important it has a lot of fantasy elements to it but it has a, a different kind of theme and it's darker i think they're both kind of funny but they both came with miniatures they both came with a setting book and a real book and cards like well i think i even have a set that were just sitting here yeah so the new the the new kickstarter is it both is it both of the it's just just the whispering venom no it's just whispering venom and the reason i bring up dozen taxes is because that's how i got hired at necromancer Okay. Um, death and ta- I did death and taxes, and I was in Madison's constant for a convention. And I'm working a booth with a friend of mine who was selling, you know, he was selling vintage material, like collector stuff, you know, copy copies we all need of like, you know, you know, the last copy I saw of the Conan module by TSR with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> like, you know, that the kind of things nostalgia stuff. Oh he, yeah, I think so I he's have in the copy he's in the booth the with me, and I'm yeah, he's in the booth with me, and I have two. I've one box set and one book I'm selling. And then down the hall, there's a uh, Frog God games and Necromancer games. They have a booth and they're mobbed. They are mobbed with people buying. They had so many books. I was, I was flabbergasted. I'd met them before briefly, but I could Bill Webb, the, um, the CEO, he, oh, he bought my uh, Kickstarter for Whisper and Venom. So, I mean, I, I knew of him, but um, when I was at the convention, he just turned to me at midnight and told me that, uh, I'm going to buy your company. I'm like, it's not worth anything, but oh, sure. He goes, well, no, I'm really going to buy you. And like, I am for sale. That, I, I am definitely for sale. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I didn't know what to expect. And that that was the beginning of uh, actually doing this full-time. I do, I'm a full-time tabletop publisher. Excellent, excellent. How has that been? <laughs> More like a job than you expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have meetings about goblins, they're still contentious because they're meetings because each side <laughs> comes in, they, each side still comes in wanting something. And then they both leave unhappy because you don't give them everything, right? I, it, um, there's still budgets. It's much like anything else in that regard. But I mean, I have a copy of the first edition player's handbook on my desk for reference because I'm working on something right now that involves it. And that's kind of nice. So those make the it isn't the highest paying job I could have, but it's not 
it's not bad. So this and this whispering venom originally was for Osric. Is that correct? Yeah, I wrote it. I, I wrote it actually. It was in Labyrinth Lord. Okay. Originally I wrote it with Osric. <laughs> but I went with Labyrinth Lord for a couple of reasons, primarily because it was cheaper to buy so I could sell it with other rules. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be able to sell it with rules to people who bought it. And I couldn't say, well, it's BXD&D. Go get yourself a Otis box set. Because <laughs> we weren't allowed to say that back then. Yeah. But um, no, it was, in Labyrinth, it was in Labyrinth Lord. And it, I hired somebody to do it to Pathfinder. And they did a good job for it. But it wasn't really a Pathfinder style adventure. Yeah. But they did a nice job. They did Death and Taxes for it as well. It was in Labyrinth Lord. And it was in Pathfinder. And then Death and Taxes was in 5th edition first the first time. That I did anything in this edition. Um, this one, Whispering Venom. So for the first time ever, the Kickstarter that's going on now, it's going to be in fifth edition and in old school essentials, which is uh, changing its format significantly yeah. um, in, in a good way. And that, I don't want to talk forever about that, but it's it's inside boring for most people, but like the layout and the, the trim size of the book and the layout and the presentation and what we're going to do with all the extra words in there that I was so in love with before that aren't as necessary. For people who play old school essentials, they don't care about that. They care about playing the game quickly and having the information for them. And well, that takes my, I told the guy that from the croc gnome that's advising him to take a giant sword and cut <laughs> what it is you think is not necessary. And we'll put, we'll find a place for it or take it out. But we, I want it to be for old school essentials. So that a lot of that's following that same type of format with old school essentials. It's a little bit more streamlined bullet point then. No, it's I absolutely, it's, it's page spreads, which means two pages in front of you should mm-hmm. have bullet points, single sentences, um, step blocks. And usually they have map, the map references on the same page. And this should be related material on one spread. Well, A5 is digest size, or six by nine, yeah. roughly, not quite. And so that means that five sentences in a paragraph, because like I've, in Whispering Venom and Dead Text, I, I did write text box, like read aloud boxes, but I knew when I wrote them, nobody was going to read them out loud. Nobody. <laughs> At 45 years old, nobody was going to buy my book and go, I'm going to read this to my game group. No, Good. the reason that they were there as a place to put differentiated checks for a description. So that a GM could look and say, this is the descriptive part that players can see. The next paragraph below it is the part that it tells me what the players shouldn't know. And then I listed treasures and monsters separately. So it wasn't super different, yeah. but it was an amount of words. And I'm a nerd. What can I do? I, I, love, I love fancy words and I love clever sentences. Those don't really work well for bullet pointed information. And OSC is great because you go in a room, wooden chest, locked. Golden doors open, you know, and and this is useful stuff. The people who on forums talk about OSC mean they they play OSC. They they don't talk about nostalgia involved with OSC at all. From what I can notice, they talk about how they're going to implement this. What's the best way? Why this saving throw should be this way? And when they play in this module, they sit down and they play it because they can open their book. They have a one page character sheet. They open their book and it's going to spreads out. They can go, and uh, that to me is appealing. And it also, I think, because I like the system and I want to, we're going to publish for it uh, many things. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that what we publish for it first it really respects what Gavin did with OSE, which was took VX, but made VX accessible, fun, and game focused. And so that's yeah. what we're going to do with it. So doing that has taken a lot of my time to organize us from our normal, I mean, like anything, we're a company. We have about 44 people we pay off and on with. PayPal's and contracts and 
et cetera. And so of everybody here, we all work a certain way. We've been working this way since, I mean, Bill founded the company in 2000 with Clark Peterson. And so 20 years. Um, and it's been doing, we do, there's a certain way things have always been done. Are they the best way? No, they're not the best way. <laughs> Are they, have they got us here? Yes. 20 years is a long time to be in business in RPGs, but adjusting how we do things to make it so we could create what OSC deserves and what I think the fans of OSC deserve and what I want to make for it by also, okay. So our process never was before to tear apart the presentation of a module that we're producing in multiple editions, but we're going to have to do that with some of them. And so we may not release OSC with all the books we release because some of them may not work with and then vice versa. But we are adjusting the whole process to make it happen. That's that's how I spend my weeks is to make sure I processes and people as opposed to Dungeons and Dragons. Right now, 20 years, you say, I, I think I've got 20 years worth of necromancer books on my shelf. To be honest. I, I bet you do. <laughs> I, I've heard do. your show. I know you, you brought it up before. Yeah, I've got- I, there's a couple I'm missing, actually, that he. The stingy boss of mine won't give them up. <laughs> there's a few, honestly, I'm having a hard time keeping up. So there's some more recent ones. I can't. I, I, no, it, I, I don't, um, I don't blame you. Be honest with you. We, we produce high volume of material. Yeah. And we are getting better at producing that high volume at a higher quality all the time. But in order to, in order to pay 44 people for their time, what they're, what they're worth, at least an estimation of what they're worth, they're probably mm-hmm. worth more, but you can only do so much um, in order to do that you're only as good as your last published book and your cash flows, right? Yeah. So we produce a, a large amount of material and we have stuff two years out still that is being worked on right now. So keeping that going, I can see why you can't keep up because I, can <laughs> I, can I can assure you, I, my boss does not know. He cannot remember what it is we're making because it is so many. Well, I, and I, uh, astonishingly enough, I think I think that I, can, I might be able to count on one hand the amount of, older stuff past stuff that i don't have i have a ridiculous amount of frog guy and necromancer no. stuff it's good stuff <laughs> the old necromancer stuff was really different i thought than a lot of the three stuff that was out at the time of the d20 it really had its own feel oh yeah it definitely did and we we we, we work with a lot of the same authors that we worked with then like we just got a book in uh, do you remember uh, lost city of Baracus? Oh, yeah, I've got that. <laughs> it's a great book. That's awesome. I like that a lot. The Heart of St. Bathurst is the sequel to it that he wrote, and that's coming out soon. Oh, really? So is that, I'm, I hear, let me ask, is that set actually in that region south of the of the estuary there in the Lost Lands? Or See, is it someplace now you're, <laughs> now you're going past my, yes, my guess is yes with no follow-ups, and I think so. We have a canon guy for all the Lost Land lore. Um, and I know it, it passed a cannon check and I know that he wrote what he knew, which was Baracus. So yeah. I know it's, sim- it's not directly the direct sequel, but it's very similar and nearby. Um, he's a famous author now. And I, we were shocked when he came to us and asked if he wanted, if we could write, if write a book, like, yeah, sure you can. No problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, that one's coming and that's, uh, called the heart of St. Bathurst. And it's interesting. It's a, it's underworld based and it's real oh. gritty. So like, you know, so we, so we still, like I said, the old Necromancer stuff had a feel and we retain that because companies retain the culture of, you know, of their founders. They just do. Yeah. Uh, Bill and Clark loved old school dungeon crawls when it was a really dangerous place to be was to be there. They, I mean, Bill's the first guy I ever saw in a convention run a game when he's like, okay, somebody's like, okay, roll the dice. And the guy rolls the dice. He goes, okay, roll 3d6. He goes, roll 3d6. Roll 3d6 again. Roll it again. He goes, roll 3d6 again. He goes, 
oh man, I'm doing another character, aren't I? I go, yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got the chance to do that one. I I've heard that I've heard that uttered and read about people doing that exact thing. No, but I mean, I, I never I'd never heard of it until I saw him do it in a game, right? And so I know he been he been doing stuff like that for a while. And his games are like that, where you new characters are common. That's not very friendly with more modern playstyles. So we have people to actually work to make sure we have things that are more that way. So yeah, I did get my chance to actually pull that a few years back. It was a couple years before COVID. We had a we had a character death, and I and I got to do the the roll three d six. And I said, okay, roll three, hand it in the sheet. And it was Steve Winter who actually. Uh, told me that he that bill had done it and i'm like eh. and then when i saw him actually do it i was taken by surprise because i just figured it's one of those apocryphal stories that <laughs> but steve winter's not not inclined to tell apocryphal stories about bill because they, they play in the same <laughs> same game so anyway so uh, the difference between uh, and i'm curious real quick because you're you've got whisper and venom is going to be coming out for fifth edition and old school essentials correct now the bullet point are, the, are they going to be the old school essentials going to be trimmed down like bullet points? The fifth edition also going to be written in that manner? No, but you, you, that's really interesting. You bring that up, and only because you're the only person you get to, you get to listen to my little short rant. Then, <laughs> no, I yes, in a way, I think that what you're going to see is because we're doing the OSC, you'll see our fifth edition stuff inheriting some of the better parts of the OSC presentation for fifth edition. We're not it's not certain yet till we do the layouts and everything, but I had a long meeting with our, our layout lady who lives in Quebec. She's amazing. And she's only worked with us a few times, but she has a pretty unique set of skills. And so we went over the layout for OSD and talked about, these are the key points. Here's some examples of what I think are important. Here are this, and here's what we can do. And here's the resources we have, et cetera. And as we're doing it, I'm realizing that some of these things will go over to 5e real well. And there are things like the charts for, here are all the encounters in this area charted up in a list. And in OSC, that's the same spread. But in 5E, that's the same section. So you can easily take that kind of information. So visual information that is useful, if you're creating it already and you know it's there, you have you can alert that to the layout people. And so there's no reason you couldn't share. Yeah. And I think that it cross-pollinates it in a useful way because it's the first time in a long time we've taken the time to look at the presentation of adventures as opposed to the content. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It does. Y'all have a very. Now, that, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into a really nerdy, all right, guess, a, a really nerdy niche area here. Y'all have a very specific font and layout and style that you've used in your books, and it's changed because more in the last couple of years you've been adding color pages to it, whereas before it was all all black and white. All no, and, uh, and the style. I'm curious if that's if that's gonna come over when this big change to OSE and making those kinds of changes will it still have those fonts and that same layout style. It's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting in a lot of ways. First of all, the the color comes from the fact that you know times change. I assure you that my boss would be the happiest person on the planet if we never produced another color book and everything was black and white <laughs> the way that he knew it. With very low art because he was a he's a white box guy so when he got his first dnd set it was the white box from tsr and uh there's one on my shelf back there it had it had six pieces of art and half of them were too dirty to print now right <laughs> um it was not art heavy it was heavy on words and the words were not cleverly written they were clunky kind of obtuse they're too clunky but you <laughs> know what it was the first no one else thought of it, it, it i don't blame them it was a hard system to learn because it was hard to explain what the concept was because there was nothing like it, right? Yeah. And so 
our layout approaches are going to change a little bit as to where they're going to go. You'll see we're going to have some OSC only releases that mm -hmm. will be very much in the style that you recognize as you're talking about. Because we're going to, the easiest way to put it is you'll see some monster books for from us from OSC because they're low-hanging oh, fruit. Nice. For, one, we love monster books. We have a lot of them. But I have, I have 1,400 monsters with black and white art ready to go that are, I just got to, we got to write the, obviously the text and organize them and stuff. But we have the ability to flood the zone, right, and make all these monster books where OSC, we're going to go slow and do it a certain way. We want to make sure that we respect the style that OSC kind of uses without trumping on their trade dress and that it becomes it becomes complicated you want to talk about niche nerdy here you go <laughs> our trade dress was a, the header font was called dominican all right and i believe the the text font was called georgia and we had a couple of different with table fonts were a little bit different so we had a standard style and chuck wright who still works with us and does the layout designed that style based on style sheets that actually came from i think white wolf and so that very much is part of our your branding our branding but with the fifth edition stuff because pathfinder was a heavy part of our branding in the early odds or like 2009 yes and it was associated heavily with pathfinder we wanted our fifth edition stuff to look a little more modern because times had changed and we weren't going to be doing books that were nine thousand pages long anymore oh no um, that see I, see I kind of lament the loss of that i like the yeah, massive it, tomes i got yeah <laughs> yeah, I'm the, yeah until you actually produce them yeah, yeah no it's wonderful yeah no honestly part of the reason with that is that we were reaching a limit the blight was 1196 pages because that's as many pages as you can actually put into a single book and still reach the, the binding limit right yes and it had it had six extra modules that went with it that didn't fit right and yes they did. Uh, and uh we converted swords of wizardry and we, I did actually with Skeeter Green, and uh, it was very, it wasn't designed in a way that was easy for Swords of Wizardry to be integrated with it. And what amazes me is how well the players who bought it, and I've heard on like podcasts and live plays, have ran with it and they just love it. But I assure you, when I was doing the conversion, it's like, well, this is a witch class. I'm like, well, is that a druid, a cleric, or a magic user? And Skeeter answers me, yes. <laughs> so you have to but you have to pick you know you have to go ahead and go into swords wizarding kind of you're narrowing it down in a way that you can present it but like there's all these spells there's a spell called a uh, um irresistible urge or something in pathfinder where it's like a, a sexual compulsion spell which i'm sure you couldn't cast nowadays but it was, it was a spell that was there i'm like well, what works for that in swords wizarding well charm person that's that's my go-to spell for any kind of you yeah. know any sort of like a was it abjuration? Anything, any of those would be charm person because that's the only one I had, only choice I had, right? So those big books were cool, but in order to do them right, for you could do them for one system, and we've always done well, for a long time in multiple system people, and they also they required an investment that was getting harder to to get because it wasn't just the investment in the book; it was the investment in the time. People, it wasn't that people didn't want the book and weren't buying it. They were, but the investment of time that they were committing to by buying a book like that was not getting the buy-in I think it was before because everything's aspirational. I have, I have, you know, 5,000 books. I, really, <laughs> I, I, I understand this. this. Is, I know this is <laughs> one of three rooms I keep this stuff in. I have a whole separate apartment full of stuff and uh, they're all aspirational purchases. I've played 1% or less of them, right? I've looked to a lot of them. I really, I use them all the time actually for research and for just general pretending to work when I'm not really working, just reading RP books, um, which is the best part of my job. No, but uh, the, the bigger, the aspirational purchase part became 
yeah, hard, just fine. With 5e, it was a different a different crowd kind of came in. And so we wanted to make sure we were able to go across, you know, platforms. And we started seeing that the color art made it really hard for, not that it was any cheaper to get black and white artists. Not, it's the same price. But with the color art, you had to do a lot more coordinating with pages and making sure that the color matches was, which we weren't great at in the beginning. Still not super at, but thank you, for Casey Christopherson, for being great at it. <laughs> no, and so shorter books became a little bit smarter and economical because uh, the print cost uh, paper isn't until recently isn't your biggest concern for printing, right? It's yeah. uh, there are a lot of other concerns for cost. Well, it, it is now a concern. Color makes it a concern too because the different kinds of printing processes and such. So that was a change. And you, do I miss them? You know what? I don't because I have to carry them. I'll be flat. Uh, I, when at conventions, <laughs> you carry six six crates of the blight. It sucks. Yeah. They're heavy. And they're huge, and everybody gets real excited about them. And then they carry one. You don't understand what it's like, man. It's tough. No, <laughs> no. But I'll, like and the Rapid Ethic is, a, it's a wonderful book. Oh, it's it's a great book. It is hard to explain to newer players, but I we sell some of that. City of Brass was another one. Great, huge, long book. I think that the next long one we've got that's close to that is probably uh, we're doing um, we're doing Rapid Ethic Under Realms. And that's one that's coming up and oh. sometime next year. So it's a, uh, uh, we did a Cyclopean Deeps and Pathfinder Soldier was Yes. Right. It's yes. that, that plus more to uh, tie it to Rapid Athic closer. So. so I've got a question. Uh, sure. I, I probably shouldn't ask. I, I mean, I'm trying to envision Rapid Athic is like, and I've always called it Rapunatuk until recent years. I tar- started talking to people on the podcast. Well, yeah, yeah, the funny right. thing is that, you know, <laughs> we said it wrong. <laughs> when I showed up here, they said it differently, so don't feel bad. <laughs> I don't think it's never meant to be pr- pronounced. Bill would say it, but he wrote it down because that would sound cool to him while he was sitting in a dive boat. <laughs> That's when he started writing it when he was sitting, he was watching the dive boat while two guys were diving for sponges and would choose the sound. So he sat at the boat with nothing to do for an hour while they were down there pulling the sponges. So for God knows what, because I, I wouldn't <laughs> eat one. So. Well, the thing is... You can run that Swords and Wizardry edition with OSE flawless. Mm-hmm. The stats in there is no problem with that. But not gonna lie, it would be pretty awesome to see that get the same treatment that OSE stuff gets. Well, that sure would be awesome. <laughs> you know, that'll take a wow. lot of time. It's a big no, no, book. no. I'll be honest with you. Um, we think about it. Um, we talk about it. We talk about more as like, oh no. I guess would be the way, but honestly, I think that what would happen, and we're thinking about it, doing so, would be it would it started out as three short modules, not short, shortish. Yeah, we were thinking it would probably be broken up into levels because we a lot of people who want to do Rapanathic would like to play it on like virtual tabletops, and to get someone to convert Rapanathic onto fantasy grounds we has been the holy chunk. grail. Well, <laughs> there's just no way it's so much work for a book that is not played really in order. Like nobody really oh, effectively. We, I know. No, but you from level one yeah. to all the way down. We, we skipped that, around in that book a lot. Yeah it's, yeah. it's not common to do it that way. So in serialized by level might be a much better way to sell it to people without the commitment of a hundred dollar book plus $60 in maps. And here's the extra modules or like here, here's a level. And it was originally three. Yeah, originally, yeah, there were the three. There were three module size modules. Then there came a box set. Just one. One I don't have is the box set. And then uh, 
eventually there were hardbacks. Man, I got a Pathfinder and a Swords and Wizardry. And the yep. beautiful thing about that Swords and Wizardry ones is that it's not as large of a book, even though it's a big, hefty tome. No, it's it's a more accessible. It's yeah, more accessible than Pathfinder one. It definitely is. And I, 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 well, we ran it for a while. I actually ran it with Castles and Crusades instead of Swords of Wizardry. <laughs> no, and Steve Chanel has asked us numerous times to convert to Castles and Crusades. And if we were to do Rappanathic in pieces, like, like I mentioned, it would probably include doing a Castles and Crusades version. Only because it's, a, it's only because that is a great system that would play well in it. And we know yeah. him well and we, we think we could market it effectively. And, it would so we would like to do an OSC of Cast Crusades and a, like a 5e revamp of the short level by level thing, but that that's not a promise for a product that is a insider, <laughs> insider <laughs> talk, man. We're but, just yeah. talking, <laughs> no, but but we do think about it a lot because it's a great product and but it is a hard product to market and it's getting it republished is expensive because we were almost out of the books for 5e and we're I think we have 20 copies left in Swords and Wizardry. Oh, um. And the getting those back is expensive. And it also takes, you know, right now, especially with supply chain stuff, a while. But it's evergreen. It, it's a, it amazes me how many people, one, it's always selling. Or it's one of our best sellers all the time. It's expensive and it still is. And there are people who still haven't heard of it. And when they hear about it, they can't believe it. They come back and they want all the other stuff. And <laughs> I want to, as a business person, I want to give them those things. But we have to, in order to introduce more people who think would really like it, we probably need a more introductory way to do it. I've I, I've been I've been I've been buying up y'all stuff for a minute. Well, I appreciate there, there that. Are, there are some like like I was thrilled about the about the Lost Lands actual like book, world finally, book when that after came eighteen out. years of talking, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Like, yay! And and I've ran through that world. It's a world that I know and that I've I've played and I've I've read even more. But yeah, modularly, there's a lot that could be done with some of that stuff. And what what happened was like this, there's almost like two in my mind. There's almost a couple different histories or segments or eras of of this because there was Necromancer games originally, and they put out a lot of really good modules for third edition. And then it becomes Frog God and eventually Frog God and Necromancer. And you get a lot of those uh, reprinted in larger format books through that time. Some of those older modules and adventures that are collected with extra information, kind of fleshing out the world and stuff like that. And there's some beautiful, just big campaigns from the the cults of the sunder the sunder uh, was it the cults of the, yep <laughs> yeah th that one that one was like with the crystal skull and the Kensler modules yes okay yeah. Yes. No, we're thinking uh, there's a one coming out, major Lost Lands release coming out that has a major effect. I just just found out. I got had to approve canon change a little bit. Um, not change, but uh, internal canon change for future stuff over an adventure called The, uh, the Haunted Steps, all about yes. the uh, the lake and about, uh, I can't say which what they're fighting, but at the end, you're going to have an, an orcus-like battle at the end of it. It's going to be epic. Yeah. Um, Alice Cameron was writing that with a guy named Patrick. I think Patrick Allen's his name from that worked with Wizards of the Coast for a lot of things. He's worked was working with Alex to write it. And Mark Greenberg is doing the the guy who did the Lost Lands uh, product management for that is doing the, the management on this book, this module. And so it's it's going to be quite a that one's going to be a big deal because I'm already seeing the maps and how expensive they are. I mean, there's a lot of them. It's going to be an epic story. And that's going to be the first, I think, really Lost Land focused large campaign we've had in a while, mostly because we have been making a lot of shorter books. Yeah. And the reason for the shorter books is, frankly, 
the big $40, a big book on PDF to justify making it is a $40 sale, but that's, that's a hard price point on PDF. Yeah. So, but I think that we're going to try some new stuff with this, uh, with the Haunted, Haunted Steps that I think will be fun. He did Sea King's Mouse. And, yes, uh, I got that one. Yeah, yep. he, he wrote that one. And then uh, that one had so much art and so much color art. And some of his, some of my, my personal background on my desktop is still Sea King's Mouse art. <laughs> um, no, and so that's coming for the Lost Lands. But the Lost Lands, frankly, what made it hard to write the book was that we had, we were putting together a lore for about 70 modules that were written in seven years by you know 18 different authors yeah there's a lot there's a lot of contradicting stuff in some of them too <laughs> yeah and when you write a adventure one of the easy ways to, to flush it out because i'll just give it, i'll tell you a secret right authors get paid by the word <laughs> so um you easy way to flush it out is to add a deity and a pantheon and just two paragraphs at least or four paragraphs or a half page of what they believe and why well without somebody overseeing all this because world building was still i mean it no one's any good at it really they really aren't <laughs> you know maybe bethesda software is good at it right a lot of this stuff crept in because we wanted good material and it made sense in the adventure and that worked right because we were looking at a micro level the macro level was not ignored but it wasn't it, greg vaughn did the yeoman's work of getting it all organized and he did oh, a great job some, he's got some good books too I, no he I, does and he he is a wordy and long-winded and his games are so fun and fast you would not know the same guy wrote it that played that ran it he really could take a, a lot of words and make them fun so so we're we're coming up on time i want before i got i gotta ask you some questions we're actually sure. way over time but i'm i want to if you wouldn't mind would you mind i don't mind at all after I, this episode I, and recording don't mind at all for the patreon that'd be great if y'all are enjoying this stick, uh, if you want to hear more, go over to our Patreon. We'll finish up a little more of this conversation. But before we go, can you tell the listeners where they can pick up y'all stuff, where they can find you online and where they can back and find them? Well, you can find us everywhere. Um, <laughs> no, uh, we have a, our website is a www.froggodgames.com. We sell from there. We have a, our warehouse is actually on my boss's property. They run the warehouse up in Washington state. So, any domestic books you want to buy or order uh, domestically, that's where I recommend you go. We sell books um, through Amazon, um, print on demand overseas. So if you want to get a copy of our newer stuff, and you don't want to pay $50 in shipping for a $50 book. Um, the option is there for you to get in POD. You can buy our PDS at drive through at our website. And you can also buy our uh, VTT stuff on Fantasy Grounds and Rule 20. Excellent. Excellent. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, please give us a positive review wherever you're listening. You can find us on Facebook. Search Wildlies and Wizards. Wildliesandwizards.com is our blog. I'm on Twitter at Logar Crom. He's Patreon. on Spotify, too, because I listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> That's where I, I listen to his show there. So just so you know, was, you can listen to it there. It's Spotify, I, Apple, iTunes. was podcast. I think iTunes is the number one that we're listening to on. Um, and then Spotify. And it's actually, I upload them on Anchor. So you want to go where I say? So you, so you understand where we're at. You know, <laughs> we're if, all over. You know, if, you, if, you're gonna, if you can sell somewhere, you may as well. Yeah. As long as you know, they know what they're buying, right? So. Yo, definitely, definitely. And as always, keep those dice rolling. And indeed, thank you very much. Thank you.